Cage 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, December 3rd, 2009, Thermoregulation and Performance. All right, so last items for this class. Uh, one, one, one big topic, one small topic. Uh, first one we want to do is thermoregulation. Um, we've talked a lot of, uh, about a lot of different variables in this class over the course of this semester that the body tries to control uh, within a fairly narrow range. Uh, pH, PO2, you know, uh, etc. Temperature is one of those things. Um, we're mammals, we're homeotherms, that means we like to maintain the same constant internal temperature. Okay? Um, for us, that tends to be around 37 degrees centigrade, you know, roughly 98.6. Some people run a little cooler than that, some people run a little hotter than that, but it's usually within a degree or so of that. But we have limits. If our body temperature gets above that, it is referred to as hyperthermia. And, and we can go body temperatures up to, you know, 41, 42 degrees Celsius. Once you start getting around, you know, uh, 108, 109, 110, 113 degrees Fahrenheit, um, it becomes a situation where it is very likely fatal. The main thing that occurs is the heat actually starts to break down proteins in the body. And a variety of different, different proteins, like muscle contractile proteins, actually start to break down. One of the biggest reasons of uh, death with hyperthermia actually is kidney failure. Okay, because what happens is all these kidneys, or all, all these kidneys, all these, uh, both of them, <laughs> uh, all these proteins break down, they get into the blood, where the kidneys filter this protein and it basically damages the, the uh, kidney structure. And so people tend to die of kidney failure. Uh, in the other direction, uh, when your body temperature starts to fall below normal, it is referred to as hypothermia, and we've got some limits there as well. You know, down in the low 90s, when somebody's body temperature gets into the low 90s, um, it basically slows down metabolism and results in uh, cardiac uh, abnormalities, uh, particularly dysrhythmias. And so people either have a, uh, a heart attack or their metabolism is slowed to the point they can't replenish enough ATP to stay alive. All right, so we need to maintain a, a, a reasonably narrow range of body temperature. There are things with the body where we either produce heat or we gain heat from the environment, and therefore there, if we gain heat or produce heat uh, 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 within the body, that would cause temperature to go up, so we've got to balance that with some way of, of losing heat. All right, so mechanisms of heat transfer. Um, I'll go out of order here a little bit. The first one is probably the most intuitive, makes sense, and that's referred to as conduction. When your body is in contact with something that is of a different temperature, you will, uh, heat will transfer from one direction to the other. You sit on a block of ice, makes your body temperature colder because you're transferring heat from your body to the ice. Okay? Um, so that's actual physical contact. Uh, radiation is transfer of heat by electromagnetic waves. 
Easiest one to think of there is the sun, okay? Radiant heat from the sun. On a cool day like this, if you stand in the shade versus standing out in the sun, you can feel the, the heat gain uh, from that radiant heat. Um, now, convection is transfer of heat by the movement of molecules that are close to the body. Okay? When you're sitting in a room, as an example, that has a temperature that is different from your skin temperature, you will, uh, in this case, the temperature in here is probably 72, 73, 74 degrees. Your body temperature is 98.6. The air molecules that are in contact with your skin will be warmed because your body is warmer than the air then those air molecules move away from the surface of your skin, taking the heat with it, okay? One of the ways that we typically enhance convective heat loss is to speed up the transfer or movement of these molecules away from the skin by using something like a fan to circulate more air across the body, okay? That's why there's that wind chill. You feel colder when the wind is blowing because you're moving... Um, warmed air molecules away from your body faster, okay? Water has about 25 times the convective heat loss than air, okay? You can sit here quite comfortably with air temperature of 72 degrees, but if you're in a swimming pool where the water temperature is 72 degrees, that feels very cold to you and you will lose body heat more rapidly. We can transfer heat by convection much more rapidly through water than through air. Okay? Um, finally, evaporation. This is heat transfer that occurs when water, when water goes from the liquid form to the gaseous form to water vapor. Okay? So when water evaporates, goes from the liquid form to the gaseous form, water vapor, it takes heat with it. And we obviously are able to transfer heat by the use of sweat. Sweating is putting water from the body on the surface of the skin in hopes that that water will evaporate and take heat with it. The act of sweating itself does not transfer heat. Okay? The water actually has to evaporate. It's one of the things that makes thermo uh, exercising in uh, areas of the country like the southeast, where it's not only hot but very humid during certain times of the year, very challenging. Because you can sweat a lot, but if you're sitting on a cycle ergometer riding, all that sweat that's dripping off your fingers and dripping off the end of your nose is not helping you thermoregulate. Okay? It's just pooling up on the ground and it's not taking any heat with it. So make sure you're clear on the di distinction that in order for heat to transfer with sweat, it has to evaporate. Okay. Well, and evaporation is altered by relative humidity. If the air is already 100% saturated with water vapor, it's very, very difficult for things to evaporate to, to add more water vapor to that air. Okay. If you live in an environment where relative humidity is very, very low, then there's a big gradient for evaporation and it can occur quickly and easily. I'll get back to that in a little bit. Um, air currents can help, uh, so those convective air currents can help evaporation. 
uh, and also surface area. The more surface area of skin that you make uh, uh, available to the air that can aid evaporation. Okay, so let's take um, two different sporting activities that might occur in uh, August. You've got um, cross-country running, where you might wear running shorts and a, and a uh, singlet, exposing a lot of skin to the air, and that allows a lot of uh, uh, better option for evaporation. What about football? What happens in football uh, in terms of being able to expose surface area to the skin? Or the you're limited. You're limited. Okay. What are they? Why are they limited? Uniforms, socks, pants, pads. Okay, jersey. You know, some some of the players have you know wrappings, helmets. Okay. So in that, that's an example where you're reducing the surface area of the skin that's available for evaporation. So for those athletes, a lot of times um, thermoregulation can be very challenging because of the requirements of the particular sport. Okay? The uniform or protective gear requirements. Uh, we, we see that also a lot in uh, sort of industrial and, and safety uh, instances as well. Firefighters, as an example, you know, still have to wear all the protective gear, um, the big bunker coats and helmets and uh, fire protective, uh, the Nomex uh, 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 suits that they wear, okay, and the big mask and everything, and that, that severely reduces the amount of surface area that's available for evaporation. So thermoregulation is a, is a big issue for uh, firefighters and other folks like that. Okay. Um, I'm just going to skip over that one and talk about exercise. So we got all these different mechanisms of uh, uh, heat gain or heat loss. The, the deal with exercise is not all of the energy, you know, way back at the very beginning of class, we talked about uh, energy transfer from one form to another. And we talked about, you know, we talked about all these different energy systems. We're only about 25% efficient, Okay. So of the energy that we are trying to use to reform ATP, about 75% of it is not being used for that. So the majority of that energy is being converted to heat energy. So just like your car, it has to have a cooling system. Most of the energy, most of the gasoline that you burn in the car is not going to drive in the wheels. It's going to heat energy. Okay? Same thing with us except we're actually less efficient. All right, what this graph shows, two things. On, th on the x-axis down here is room temperature, okay? And it's in Celsius, so 20 degrees, roughly right around here, Celsius is about room temperature. If we drop down here to about 10 degrees, that's about, that's about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And if we come up here to 40, that's about 104. It's a little bit over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So this is room temperature. On this side is body temperature, okay? 36, 37, 38, 39 degrees Celsius. 37 is about average for most people at rest, okay? Now, what they did with this particular study is they measured people's body temperature as they cycled on a stationary bike 
for, I think it was an hour or two, and they looked at their body temperature at different, well, first of all, um, let's look at just the effect of exercise intensity. Okay, sitting on a cycle ergometer, riding in a room at, what, what happened to this thing? Room temperature, okay, little plus signs, zero watts. That's sitting on a cycle ergometer with no, that's just moving your legs around, okay, zero watts. Then we go up to 50 watts, 100 watts, 150, 200, 300, yeah, and 300 at the top. Okay, so when you exercise in, in a uh, room temperature, as exercise intensity goes up, our energy expenditure goes up, and we produce more heat, and body temperature goes up. Okay. <clears throat> now, let's look at um, what happens as we increase the temperature in the room. Okay, here's, here's that zero watts, no load on the bike at all, just sitting there with your legs spinning. Look what happens as you go up to 30 and 40, we get this big increase in body temperature. Okay, so exercising at the same intensity, if we increase the ambient temperature, body temperature is going to go up. We're, we're producing the same amount of heat, but we're obviously having problems in, in getting rid of that heat, so we store more heat and body temperature goes up. All right, so two things about exercise are going to be important in terms of heat generation, and that is the exercise intensity and the ambient temperature, the, the temperature of the environment in which you're exercising. And as either of those go up, body temperature is going to go up. Okay? All right, so what do we do about it? What the, the, the uh, phrase or nomenclature that's used for it is heat load. Okay, we're gaining us this heat load. Right, this heat load is sensed by uh, receptors uh, in the body, in the skin, and in a variety of places in the body. One of the places is, is in the brain, is in this hypothalamus where you've got sensors. So this increase in temperature is sensed. It sends that signal to the temperature regulation center in the hypothalamus of the brain. The hypothalamus then sends a signal, uh, that, and we've got two major responses. One is we send signals to the blood vessels in the skin to vasodilate. Okay, So blood vessels in the skin are going to vasodilate. So if you're exercising, remember how we talked about local control where we vasodilate to the exercising muscles? Now we're also going to vasodilate to the skin. And so some of that cardiac output that's coming out, the majority of it's still going to go to exercising muscle, but now some of that cardiac output is going to go to the skin. Okay, um, So that's called cutaneous, or skin, vasodilation. That's why when you go out and exercise when it's hot and particularly humid, um, you're all flushed, okay? Because that's an increase in blood flow to the skin. That is an attempt to lose heat by radiation, okay? Blood flows through your muscles, is warmed up, is then sent out to the surface of your skin, 
so that this warm blood is flowing to the surface of your skin in an attempt to radiate that heat out to the environment. Okay? That is only effective if the ambient temperature is less than your body temperature. Let me say that again. You can only radiate heat to the environment if your body temperature is higher than the ambient temperature. Because if it's 120 degrees outside, which way is heat going to go? It's going to go from the ambient temperature to your body. Okay? All right, the second thing the hypothalamus does is it sends a signal to the sweat glands that are buried in the, in the skin and tells those sweat glands to secrete sweat, which is mostly water, onto the surface of the skin. Okay? So that puts this layer of fluid on the surface of the skin in the hopes that that water will evaporate and take heat with it. Okay? Um, this is only effective if the relative humidity is low enough to allow for evaporation of that sweat. Okay? So this one is effective when ambient temperature is low and is reduced when ambient temperature is high. This one is effective when relative humidity is low and is reduced when relative humidity is high. Okay? Um, this just tries to show by graphic um, or by a figure here of, of sending this blood flow to the surface of the skin to try to radiate off some of this heat. Um, Now, let me give you two different examples uh, based on the last two places where I've lived. Uh, before I moved to Atlanta, I lived in Fresno, California, which is in the Central Valley of California. Um, and in the summertime there, it is routinely 105 degrees during the day. Okay, it's a very desert-like environment uh, that is hot. So the ambient temperature is very warm. However, in California, people start bitching when the humidity gets to be about 20%. <laughs> they, they think that's really humid. So for somebody who grew up in the South, I just laughed at them. Um, okay, so in the summer in Fresno, ambient temperature is very high, okay, but relative humidity is very low. So you can go out and exercise, uh, and in fact, you can go out for a long bike ride or go out for a long run, and when you get done, you have almost no perception of sweating. However, sweating has been your main thermoregulatory mechanism, okay? Relative humidity is very low. Well, let me back up. Ambient temperature is high, 105. So even if you're exercising pretty hard, your body temperature is probably only going to get to 103, 104. So you're not going to radiate a lot of heat. You're not going to use radiation very much because the ambient temperature is really high. However, relative humidity is very low. So you can go out and run as hard as you want to run with almost no perception of sweating. You are sweating, but your sweat is evaporating very quickly. Okay? So in those kind of conditions, sweating becomes our main mechanism of heat loss. Then you move to Atlanta, where at the same time of year it's 90, 92, 93, 94 degrees, okay? lower than body temperature, but the relative humidity is 
80 or 90 percent. Okay? Now you go out and run or ride and not only do you perceive that you're sweating, your clothes are plastered to your skin and sweat is dripping off of your fingers and your nose. Okay? Because in this case, you can radiate more heat because your body temperature is now up at 101, 102, but ambient temperature is 92, so you can use radiation to get rid of heat, but there's a much smaller gradient for sweat because the relative humidity is so high. Okay? Does that make sense? Question? Um, let, let's, let's, let me say it a different way. The closer you get to 100% relative humidity, the less effective sweating is. Okay? So, so the higher, so it's an inverse relationship. The higher the relative humidity in the air, the less effective sweating is. Okay? Now, this affects performance. Exercising in the heat affects performance because in either situation, <clears throat> we use the cardiovascular system as our primary mechanism of getting rid of heat. In, one of, in the radiation mechanism, we're circulating warm blood to the surface of the skin, and the blood that is sent to do that is not available to send oxygenated blood to the muscles. So there's a competition. We've, we've, got to, we've got to divert some of our cardiac output resources to thermoregulation so our performance drops a little bit. Okay? So that's, that's with blood flow and radiation. Sweating is a problem because the main reservoir of water for sweat in the body is your blood volume. Okay? So the more you sweat, the more your blood volume drops. The less blood you have available to send to exercising muscle, and also the less blood you have available to send to the surface of the skin. Okay? So exercising in the heat causes a competition for, for available oxygenated blood supply, and so typically performance, athletic performance, declines. You actually sweat about the same. Um, it's just more noticeable here because it's not evaporating so quickly. Yeah. Uh, it, it's sort of the same idea as uh, a lot of times uh, swimmers uh, are sweating. If they're, if they're working out hard, uh, and particularly if the water is reasonably warm, they're sweating. They just don't realize it because it's obviously being you know, washed away uh, in the pool. So same sort of thing in an environment like Central California, you're sweating quite a bit. You're just not you're just not uh, perceiving it because it's evaporating so quickly. And in fact, a lot of what happens with a lot of folks is they don't even realize it until they get done. And when they're done, they've got salt, you know, literally crusted on them because uh, there is more in sweat than just water. We've got sodium, potassium, uh, etc. Okay, I'm gonna skip over this one because this just shows graphically what I just said. Um, okay, so hyperthermia 
decrease performance. Uh, we got to make sure we balance heat loss with heat gain, okay? Because if we get too hyperthermic, it's not unusual to get to about uh, 103, 104, 105 degrees with exercise in the heat. But with most people, if you get too much above that, you start to we, you start to see heat injury, okay? And, and we'll talk about a couple different heat injury scenarios in a moment. You also dehydrate, okay? Relatively small declines in body weight through dehydration result in very, uh, uh, fairly significant declines in performance. Okay? It's primarily due to water loss, decreased blood volume, can also be uh, uh, tracked to electrolyte disturbances. Okay, losses of sodium and potassium and, and chloride, which can result in electrolyte imbalances. One of the most important things that people can do if they're exercising in the heat is fluid replacement. Okay, this study shows the difference between, uh, and this is what I think two hours of uh, cycling in a hot environment. You're not going to stop heat from, you know, body temperature from going up, but we can see the effects of what happens when you replace fluid versus not replacing fluid. Okay, we're starting to level out the increase in body temperature uh, when we're replacing fluid, whereas when we're not, we're, we're seeing a continual gradual rise. Okay, here's the problem. You can sweat, particularly once people are acclimated to the heat, you can sweat one to two liters, liters of sweat an hour, but you can only replace about a maximum of a liter of, uh, of water per hour. What happens is the gastrointestinal tract can't take in and absorb water at the same rate that you're losing it through sweat. Now, you still need, if you're, if you're doing exercise, particularly that's prolonged in a hot environment, you still need to try to replace fluids as best as you can, but it's essentially a, ultimately a losing battle because you can't replace it as fast as you're, as you're uh, sweating it out, okay? Um, at least not practically. There are examples of um, Ironman triathletes. Okay, is it, what are, what are the, what's the distance of an Ironman triathlon? Swimming, swimming is, the first event is swimming, two and a half miles, two and a half miles swimming. About 114 miles on the bike, and then a full marathon, 26 miles after that. Okay, and the original and the the the, the main uh, Ironman triathlon is held in Hawaii, where the ambient temperature is usually in the mid 80s to low 90s, um, and it is also humid. There are there are case studies of athletes who have gained 15 pounds during the course of an Ironman triathlon because they are pouring flu so many fluids down to try to combat the, the fluid loss. The problem is the majority of that fluid sits in their GI tract because your stomach and your intestines can't absorb that much fluid that quickly, particularly while you're exercising. Okay, There's a we won't go into it, but those of you who are interested in this, uh, uh, um, there's some great articles out there on a uh, 
phenomenon called uh, hyponatremia, which is your body's blood sodium levels get too low. And it's typically in these long endurance events because when you're sweating, you're losing water, but you're also losing salt. And people take in large quantities of water and it dilutes their body's concentration of sodium. And it, if it gets low enough, it can actually be fatal. So um, sometimes people will go to extremes to try to replenish fluids, um, so much so that it, it out outpaces uh, the body's ability to absorb those fluids. Okay, but that's kind of that's an extreme example. For the most part, the idea is, you know, if you're exercising in the heat, fluid replacement will help, as opposed to no fluid replacement. Uh, okay, so first of all, uh, uh, practical strategies. You want to make sure that the body is what's called U-E-U, U-hydrated before you start. That means you, you're, you're not dehydrated at the beginning of the workout or of the uh, race. So you want to make sure and take in water beforehand. The, the, the minimum recommendation is about two cups of water within a couple of hours of the event starting, okay? Then during the exercise, start drinking early and drink regularly. Don't wait because our, our thirst mechanism does not keep up with our water loss, okay? You're, it, if you're feeling thirsty, you're already dehydrated, okay? So the idea is to start early, drink regularly, uh, this may be as much as three to four cups of water per hour if you're exercising in an environment where you're sweating heavily. Okay. Fluids that are cool and that have some flavor to them are typically shown to uh, stimulate more voluntary drinking and fluid intake. So that helps. If the exercise or the event is in excess of an hour, then... Uh, instead of plain water, should probably consider some kind of sports drink that has carbohydrate in it for energy and sodium in it to replace the sodium that's lost through sweat. Okay. In reality, I'd say this would probably be two hours. You know, if you're exercising in the heat, anything up to an hour, hour and a half, you're probably fine. Prolonged would be really more than hour and a half, two hours. So you might want to consider some type of sports drink. Despite the picture I have up here, the recommendation is it is much better to put the water in you than to put it on you. <laughs> okay, This might feel, feel uh, better temporarily, but studies actually show that pouring water on your head or running through the misters or whatever actually does not change your body temperature. Now, there's some value in it feeling better, Okay, so that's okay. Um, but don't do it with the mistaken idea that uh, particularly if there's limited water available, it's much better to drink it than it is to pour it over your head. Okay? Um, then one of the biggest problems, particularly with sports like football or other sports that get started at the time of year where there's uh, daily practices or multiple practices in a day, it's not the dehydration that occurs with one exercise bout or one practice. It's Athlete goes, does the morning workout, gets a little dehydrated, doesn't take in adequate fluid, does the afternoon workout, gets more dehydrated, and the heat injury happens uh, two or three days down the road. 
successive dehydration, not all at once. So you want to make sure and pay attention to fluid replacement. Um, easy way to do this, because in the course of a single exercise, virtually all the weight you're going to lose during that single bout of exercise is going to be water. Okay, So weighing pre and weighing post, um, and, and it's about a liter, or about a kilogram is equal to a liter. Okay, So if you lose a kilogram, 2.2 pounds of weight, that equates to about a liter of fluid. Okay, And so you want to make sure, and so that works out to be about two cups of fluid for every pound of weight loss. Okay, So replenishment, very important. Uh, heat injury, I'm going to skip over those couple. Um, we've talked about cramps a little bit in here. Uh, heat cramps, again, just kind of typically with a lot of people, an accelerated process, typically due to both fluid imbalance, dehydration, and electrolyte imbalance, uh, sodium and potassium loss. You know, the basic strategy there is to stop the activity that's, that's causing the imbalance. So rest, rehydration, and then make sure the individual is more adapted to exercising in the heat. All right, these next two are often difficult to tell apart. One is bad, the other one is potentially fatal. Okay? Uh, heat exhaustion, or sometimes referred to as heat syncope, is when people start to get dizzy, lightheaded, confused, they, they may, they may um, faint, collapse, um, etc. This is basically due to, uh, um, again, dehydration and declines in cardiac output, blood pressure. You typically see a high elevated racing heart rate. Um, could be from blood pooling in the extremities. Okay. Um, in this case, it's rarely fatal. Person just stops exercising, get their feet elevated so that their blood flow is more in the central core, um, get them rehydrated, and they're usually fine. Uh, what's worse is when their body temperature has gotten to the point where the body has to make a decision. Um, I'm either going to send blood flow to critical organs like the heart and the brain, or I'm going to continue to send blood flow to the extremities to try to get rid of heat. And when it makes the decision to keep the blood flow to those critical organs, what happens then is the ability to stop the rise in body temperature is lost, and the body's temperature keeps rising and rising, and if they're not cooled down, usually by external means, then it results in hyperthermic death. Okay, and so what happens in this case, and it's it one of the distinguishing features that you may or may not see. In this case, the person is generally still sweating, and their skin, because they're sweating, may feel cool and kind of clammy and wet. In this case, because the body has started to shut off sweating mechanisms that they, you will, you, they will feel noticeably hotter to you and they may or may not, the, the skin may be more dry depending on how long it's been since they've quit sweating. The, the, um, this is clearly life-threatening and what needs to happen here is the person needs to be cooled down rapidly, typically with uh, ice packs or uh, cold water, okay, put it in an immersion bath with cold water. Um, this is really tricky because there can actually be a rebound hypothermia. And so this is a case where you know, calling EMS is critical because you need critical care folks 
Um, this is the kind of thing where they really need to monitor body temperature to make sure that not only are you getting it down quickly, but you're not going too far in the other direction. Okay. Um, kids, those of you who work with kids, real simple. Um, kids are less efficient, so they, they tend to, for any given level of exercise, they tend to generate more heat, and also they sweat less. Okay, so with kids, you've got to be really careful um, if you do, you know, if you do summer camps with kids, if you, you know, PE classes where you're outside in the late spring and early summer or, or late summer, the beginning of fall term, got to be really careful with kids because they, they don't thermoregulate as well. Fluid replacement, shade, reduce intensity, more rest, okay? So practical things with working with kids. Okay, like all of our other physiological mechanisms, there can be adaptations that will help us thermoregulate more effectively. Uh, the first thing you have to remember is that in order for these to take place, you have to have exposure to heat and you actually have to exercise in the heat. You can't just get it from lying in a sauna. There will be some, but you won't get the full benefit. You actually need exposure to the heat and you need to exercise in that hotter environment. Uh, we increase our plasma volume so that gives us a bigger reservoir of fluid. We start sweating sooner. Okay? When you start exercising uh, at, at a lower increase in body temperature your sweating kicks on. That's an attempt to start getting rid of heat before you take on too big of a heat load. Okay? Um, you increase your sweat rate. Your total capacity to sweat increases. Okay? So you can put more fluid on the surface of the skin for evaporation. Your sweat becomes more dilute. Okay? The less sodium, potassium, chloride, uh, other things that are in there, the more pure water is, the easier it evaporates, okay? So as you get more uh, acclimated to exercising in the heat, your sweat becomes more dilute. That helps you because it evaporates easier and you don't lose as many electrolytes in the heat. Um, okay, your heart rate, cardiac output, etc., at any sub-maximal exercise intensity will be lower because you don't have to send as much to the surface of the skin to get rid of heat because you're, you haven't gained as much heat because you started the whole heat balance process earlier. Okay. This process takes about a week or two when you uh, uh, start your exposure to exercising in the heat. Okay. So it can happen relatively quickly. This just graphically shows both earlier onset and more rapid sweating rate. So it's just graphically what I've already told you. And same thing with those. Okay. Let's take the opposite. Let's uh, finish up with the opposite, exposure to cold. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big mistake on this slide. Okay. Your body has these temperature receptors uh, in the skin and in the, uh, 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 in the core of the body, but also in the brain, in the hypothalamus. 
So falling body temperature is sensed. Those signals are sent to the hypothalamus and it sends signals out to do other things. Now the big difference or the big mistake is right here. Because when body temperature goes up, you want to send more blood flow to the skin to radiate heat. If your body is too cold, what would you rather do instead? Cutaneous vasoconstriction to try to keep blood flow more central in the core of the body. Okay, So you need to make sure and change this from cutaneous vasodilation to vasoconstriction. What happens to your ears and your nose and your fingers and your toes when you get cold? They turn blue, you know, because you're, you're shutting down blood flow to those areas to conserve it in the core. That's one of the reasons that when people, you know, skiing or mountaineering or that kind of thing are, are uh, susceptible to frostbite because, and when people have frostbite, it's usually their fingers, their toes, their ears, their tip of their nose because blood flow has been shunted towards the core of the body um, to, to protect the more valuable, I guess to the body, uh, you know, a kidney is more valuable than fingers. So it, it'll act to save kidneys and, and, and will sacrifice fingers and toes. Okay, uh, another response instead of sweating, which we got with, with uh, hyperthermia, with hypothermia, we get shivering. Okay, involuntary muscle contraction because when we contract muscle what happens to temperature in that muscle goes up it's in effect making that muscle kind of exercise shivering is kind of like an involuntary exercise that increases metabolism in that muscle and causes uh, temperature to go up um, stimulates the thyroid gland to release thyroxine and stimulates catecholamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. These are all hormones that will increase body metabolism. And by increasing metabolism, we increase heat production. Okay? So body's, body's responses to cold. Um, wind chill chart. I'm going to skip over these. This one just sort of shows the, uh, what I talked about earlier, that in terms of maintaining body temperature, uh, it's much worse if you're wet or you're in the water. Okay? So for winter sports, it's one of the reasons you want to dress appropriately so you don't sweat a lot. Because then when you stop exercising, if your body's wet, you get colder much quicker because of the greater transfer of heat with water instead of, uh, as compared to air. Um, and we can't, you know, if you're a, same thing as with uh, heat exposure, if you're exposed to cold, your body adapts as well. Um, so, all right, let me finish that up and go to our last little bit. And this one is uh, the PowerPoint title performance. This will be a good way to help you study for the final. Okay? Um, in this class, we've talked about a variety of different things, but we've tended to talk a lot about, you know, 
performance, what either helps or hinders performance in a variety of different athletic or sporting tasks. You know, they can be things like environment, like we just talked about, um, altitude or heat and humidity or those sorts of things. Uh, we didn't talk much about this, or this is more psychology and motor learning over here. Um, some of this might be uh, muscle fiber type, you know, we've talked about those. Some of it may be diet, you know, or energy system related things. But one of the things I like the way your book does this is it separates out performance into, let me back up, very short-term performance. Seconds, high, short-term, high power, high strength, very, very short, very high power-oriented events. The next one is still high uh, force, but you know a little bit longer, and then things that are more aerobic in nature. Very high aerobic, a um, uh, little bit longer, and then what the more prolonged ultra type uh, events. Okay, so just to give you the overall kind of categories, then we look at that's the book's version. This is my version. Okay. So these are ultra short-term performance. Think sprinting, think powerlifting or Olympic lifting. Obviously, skill and technique plays a role. Okay, if you're a sprinter, uh, good running technique, technique of you know listening to the gun go off and get out of the blocks quickly, all that kind of stuff, um, and that's motor learning, practice, coaching, all that kind of stuff. We haven't talked about that much in here. Motivation, that's more sports psychology. Okay? But what we've talked about in this class is in order to do well in those kind of events, you're talking about being able to generate a lot of power. And so the way this can help you think about studying for the final is, you know, what are the factors we've talked about, anatomical and physiological, that help us produce lots of power? Okay? Certain fiber types produce more power more force more quickly than other fiber types, okay? Certain energy systems provide the energy to, to fuel that force production faster than other types, okay? And then there are adaptations to training that help enhance these systems, okay? So think through that. Okay, then we move on to short-term performances. This is from... You know, this, so the other one may be, you know, uh, powerlifting, sprinting, 10 sec, you know, 100 meters. This is now moving out to more, uh, maybe 400 meters, 800 meters, longer sustained, still requires a lot of force production and power, but longer time period, a little more sustained. Skill and motivation, which we didn't talk about much in here. Energy systems. So of these energy systems, for this kind of event, which of these might be more predominant? Glycolysis. Okay. Is it still going to use oxygen consumption? Yeah. And oxygen consumption during two minutes of hard exercise is going to be ramping up, but it's still probably not the predominant one. Probably glycolysis. Okay. Now this exercise gets... Uh, long enough that, that muscle and blood pH, acidity, becomes a problem. And we talked about buffers. 
And what did we talk about that helped us manipulate the buffering system? Bicarbonate loading. Okay? And then training, how training affected these energy systems. Okay? Okay, and I, I don't have my own for these next three, but they're very similar. Okay, aerobic performance, three to 20 minutes. This is looking at something like um, a mile to three miles or so. Okay, so in these types of events, it helps to have a very high uh, aerobic, aerobic power plant. Okay. So, very high VO2 max. And we know oxygen consumption is cardiac output times AVO2 difference. So, we want to have a big maximal cardiac output. So, we train a lot so our maximal heart rate goes up more, right? I should be hearing a resounding no. Does maximal heart rate change with aerobic exercise training? No. Stroke volume. Okay. Train genetics and training will help us with our stroke volume. Bigger stroke volume helps increase our maximal cardiac output. Then over here we've got, and it, that's stated a little differently than you've seen it before, but it's still a AVO2 difference. Okay. This is influenced by fiber type. So now what's more important in terms of the fiber type? For performance. What type? Slow twitch, type 1, slow twitch, which is affected by genetics, right? But then also the type of training that you do, because the more training you do affects number and size of mitochondria, capillaries, myoglobin, etc. Training affects blood because we increase our hemoglobin, oxygen carrying capacity. Okay? What did we talk about doing to manipulate oxygen carrying capacity? Blood doping. Okay. Um, what did we talk about that actually impaired PO2? Altitude. Okay. So you can see, you can start to fit in some of the different things we've talked about in terms of manipulating the system or how it affects either through training or through um, environment. Okay. Is this making sense? Is this okay? And I know I'm about out of time. I'm starting to see some blank faces, but two more slides, and that's all. That's all you'll ever ever have from me. Two more slides. Is that right? Or am I lying? Well, I mean, in, you know, and <laughs> a test. Okay. Now we're going to take this aerobic performance out further. Okay, so now we're getting out in the range of 10K race, okay, maybe out to 10 miles or so. So we're getting out to around an hour. It still helps to have, obviously, a big aerobic power plant. But now you need to be able to exercise at a high percentage of that maximum for a longer period of time. You need to be able to maintain a high steady state VO2. Um, oh, that's percentage VO2. Yeah. You need a big VO2 max, but it also helps to be able to exercise at a high percentage of VO2 max. Um, 
we talked about that with lactate threshold, okay, in terms of being able to exercise at a high intensity before you start to accumulate a lot of lactate. Um, some of that can be due to type 1 fibers, okay, the type slow twitch fibers that you have. Um, sorry. I know a lot of you have been complaining about biomechanics, so I didn't mean for that to be in the slide up here, but uh, we'll just ignore this side over here, okay? All right, so some things that can adversely impact. Okay, uh, all the stuff from the previous slide still apply here because it's aerobic, but we're going to add a couple of things because some things that can adversely impact performance is now you're exercising long enough that heat load is an issue, okay? That you can gain heat and you can also become dehydrated. So that can be a factor with performance. Probably not as much of a factor in performance when the exercise is five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. More of an issue when the, it's an hour because the longer the exercise, the more heat load you're gonna build. Okay, and then finally, when we're going out longer, like marathon, you know, that type of uh, uh, half marathon, marathon, you're out there for a couple of hours, all the same stuff, except now, this is all the same over here, what we're adding now is this part right here, which is all the carbohydrate metabolism stuff that we talked about, or carbohydrate manipulation, carbohydrate muscle glycogen loading, okay, pre-event meal, Consuming carbohydrate during the exercise, all in an attempt to try to keep carbohydrate oxidation up and improve performance. Because if you don't, those carbohydrate, those liver and muscle glycogen stores are going to decline. You will not be able to sustain carbohydrate metabolism. But if you're out there on the bike or you're out there halfway through the marathon, once you get carbohydrate depleted, what do you have to depend on for fuel source? Fat metabolism, okay? And can you sustain the same running pace with fat metabolism as you did with carbohydrate? No. So you have to slow down, okay? So we want to, that, that can impair performance or we can enhance performance by manipulating carbohydrate, fuel, fuel sources, okay? All that makes sense? Now's a whole semester in five slides. Everybody good? Questions?